0: This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is Emily Score, CEO of Growth Energy. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Growth Energy's Emily Score. Next. Today's Open Mic segment is brought to you by America's Crop Insurance Industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Providing individualized protection on more than 311 million acres of farmland, crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. The nation's ethanol industry has seen its share of challenges over the past several months. Growth Energy CEO Emily score says the financial battle began long before the COVID pandemic.
1: We came into COVID already under economic duress, having suffered through trade wars and weak margins and hostile regulators. So then hit with a pandemic, fuel demand plummets 50 percent, ethanol demand plummets 50 percent. Half of the industry at one point was offline in the early spring. And so that was very much the effect of COVID. Now, fortunately, we've been able to stabilize some, and we're hovering these past several months around, 10% 10% below demand year over year, typically to, to pre-COVID, the pre-COVID experience. Um, so we've made strides in stabilization, but we're not there yet. I mean, I still have members that have, that have not yet opened since they shut their doors in the spring because of COVID. And so we had hard hit with COVID and the cumulative impact of the the Trump administration's abuse of small refinery exemptions, more than 4 billion gallons of demand destroyed. Um, And so we've got some work to do with this new administration.
0: Over 4 billion gallons of ethanol production lost. How does that affect your industry overall? And what's the pending effect on the corn demand that you would have because of those lost gallons?
1: On the corn demand, that means we're not grinding probably about a billion and a half bushels of corn as a result of that demand loss. So there's a very immediate effect on the corn market and corn demand. Uh, what it does for our industry is that we, we very much um, rely on the renewable fuel standard to continue to force market penetration, that we're blending more ethanol every year. And because of these exemptions, in effect, we're not. We are not maxing out our potential. We're not um, maxing out what the renewable fuel standard intends in terms of driving more fairness um, and competition in the marketplace. So it's a, it's a real detriment um, to us as an industry and us as a nation because consumers benefit from blending more ethanol. It keeps the price of gasoline low, and it's cleaner burning fuel.
0: So what's the effect on jobs, on the equity and the value of the plants and the investment, and even then on the rural economies where these plants are located?
1: Well, it's a very immediate effect. I mean, you had thousands of employees that were furloughed in the spring as a result of our need to dramatically curtail our production. Keep in mind, ethanol plants, it's a skilled workforce. So in very small communities, it's not just jobs, but it's good-paying jobs. And, you know, I don't think it's, it's overstating that the, the ethanol industry is very much the engine of the rural economy. So there's absolutely a ripple effect. We're continuing to see that. Um, and that's absolutely the conversation that we need to continue to have in Washington. Lawmakers need to understand, if you want to rebuild rural America, ethanol is a ready way for you to be able to do that.
0: We've passed the transition now out of the Trump administration and into the Biden administration. And in the waning hours of that of Mr. Trump, I understand additional SREs were granted for 2019 and 2018 to the sum of 260 million gallons. What's the status of those additional exemptions?
1: The status is the, the exemptions have been granted. I mean, there's already litigation underway um, and a request to stay those three exemptions. So the court will be uh, receiving a briefing and there they will go through kind of the, the legal motions. I think the larger conversation is it actually, I'm not necessarily surprised given what was taking place at the EPA. Um, and frankly, we're fortunate that it wasn't twenty two. So there was there were rumors that it would have been a much much more at that eleventh hour. Um, I think what we are focused on very much is that there are sixty five pending small refinery exemption requests sitting at the EPA, sixty five requests that will be handled by this administration. So very important for us moving forward is that this administ- administration, we want them to deny, all if not the vast majority of them. We think there's very good legal standing for that. Um, and so we've got to con- not only continue our litigation to, to claw back the lost gallons, but make sure that EPA doesn't miss misstep moving forward.
0: We'll stay with litigation, but let me ask first, have you had contact with Mr. Biden or members of his administration uh, before we have a new admin at the EPA? And, and what's been the result of those discussions?
1: So we have had conversations. Certainly, um, we, we've had some good conversations with the transition team, and now um, in the past couple of months, and now those conversations are with people who are actually at the agencies, both at the career and the political level. Uh, very important um, as the new team is coming on board, that they understand two things. One, very important that they understand the strong statements of support their boss, the president, had on the campaign trail. Fortunately for our industry, uh, Biden came out with some strong statements of support, not only on the value of ethanol as a, as the engine of the rural economy, also as a vital tool in, in addressing climate change. He had strong statements of support for the renewable fuel standard, strong admonishment of the Trump EPA's handling of small refinery exemptions. So, A, we've got to be reminding the people in place in the agencies now of that, and then B, make sure that we introduce them to the modern American ethanol industry and bring forward the most recent um, fantastic data validating not only our value to the real economy, but our ability to play a a very strong role in climate change. And I'll tell you, just this week, Harvard researchers came out with uh, the latest analysis Ethanol, 46% greenhouse gas reduction relative to gasoline. I mean, that statistic keeps going up. And so we've got to make sure that we quickly educate and, and establish constructive relationships with this new team in town.
0: Again, with new faces in Washington, can you update us on the Tenth Circuit decision and how that litigation process is ongoing?
1: Certainly. The Supreme Court has decided to take up that case. So there will be um, they will be hearing arguments this spring. Um, and so, I think the industry as, as a whole we're expecting um, decisions late spring, early summer on that. Um, and so, we certainly believe that the Tenth Circuit Court decision was strong decision, and would hope to see that the Supreme Court would uphold that decision. Um, but that's where we are on the Supreme Court.
0: Again, in the regulatory front and with litigation as a kicker, uh, obviously a new court ruling on restoring. 500 million gallons of 2016 demand. What were your thoughts with that announcement coming uh, this past week?
1: So the court decided not to, um, they denied our mandamus motion. We're, we're part of that case. Um, the good news is that we have the court's attention. And they've ordered EPA to report back to them every 60 days. And so that additional level of scrutiny is a positive step. Um, and let's hope that it spurs this, this agency and this administration into action.
0: So the situation of supply and demand stands as this. With the COVID pandemic, we're still not driving as much as we did prior to the outbreak so many months ago. So gasoline demand is down and ethanol demand has been down. And at the same time, we're talking about trying to restore uh, volume that was lost in previous years. It makes a, a difficult situation even more challenging, doesn't it?
1: It certainly does. And the path forward for us is going to be greater use of higher blends of ethanol. We've saturated the market. Today's gasoline is using a 10% blend. So the demand for, for ethanol coming out of that, that's going to rise and fall very much in parallel with gasoline demand. We need more consumers to be putting a higher blend of ethanol into the gas tank. And so very importantly, we want to make E15 the commercial success nationwide that we know it can and should be. And that is going to be our opportunity for a real ultimate step change in the demand of ethanol domestically.
0: Executive order came from the president with regard to climate change, a 30 by 30 goal. Where does the renewable fuel industry fit with this administration's executive order and what could be climate legislation coming from the 117th?
1: Very importantly, as you look at this administration's goals, uh, the progressive Democrats' goals for a zero, um, zero emission future by 2050, those goals cannot be met without biofuels. And just last week, a Rhodium, which is a very well-esteemed climate analysis firm, really highly regarded by that community, came out with a report saying you need biofuels in the mix to achieve the goals. So the conversation for us is that you've got a goal. We are a ready tool in the toolbox. Importantly, biofuels we are available now. We can be used in the existing auto fleet, and we are we are affordable for all communities. So. We continue to see statements about electric vehicles, um, statements coming out as that a goal I mean for the foreseeable future for the next decades, the internal combustion engine it's going to continue to be the dominant road um, car on the, on the road, and we now have an immediate opportunity to start achieving these climate goals using more higher blends of
0: biofuel. I would seek your opinion on this. My wonder in the days ahead, will climate policy and energy policy be accomplished in Washington more from an administrative and a regulatory approach, or will we be patience in time for the legislative process to take its course?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I think certainly we're seeing very strong signals that um, that Mr. Biden. I mean, he's climate is going to be an important component of all the work every one of his agencies is doing, and so there's going to be a lot that he's going to be able to try and do administratively, because of course he's got much more control over that. On the legislative front, the fact that you have such slim majorities in both the House and the Senate means that broad, sweeping legislation like a Green New Deal, it's going to be facing really strong headwinds. So what you're going to see from the legislature is more kind of movement on incrementalism, um, activities around budget reconciliation, where we need to be very bullish um, as an industry is looking for those opportunities to make sure that biofuels are a part of what, is going to be moving through the legislature but it's going to be more slow moving certainly on the congressional side
0: when tom vilsack was secretary of agriculture before under the obama administration he was able to secure some funds that would help to uh... bring about uh... a better infrastructure of making renewable fuels available to those who would like to use them in their vehicles uh... and now uh... obviously he is the nominee for this new administration when we turn to this new president, he has suggested thousands of recharging stations to be put in place for what's anticipated for additional electric vehicles. I wonder if there will be the sharing of funds to develop the infrastructure for higher ethanol blends as well as electric vehicles.
1: That is absolutely, um, the conversation that we, that we, will be having and have been having at the administrative level, but also at the congressional side. I mean, Congress, too, is looking at major infrastructure funding, and it's that notion of parity. So if you're going to um, have something um, on electrification, we've got to have parity in building out the strength of the infrastructure so that consumers have access to higher biofuel blends. And so uh, certainly we're very proud. I mean, the 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 infrastructure program that you talked about that came about under Secretary Vilsack and his First, uh, under the Obama administration, that coupled with private investments, that is what has gotten us to this place of 2,300 retailers offering E15. We continue to need um, infrastructure investments, and so we welcome that absolutely, whether it comes from the administration and or whether it comes from Congress.
0: I want to turn the focus for just a moment away from growth energy, and let's turn it to the auto industry. Uh, From their perspective, they have emission standards that have been a moving target. And they're making investment now for the vehicles that we'll be driving years from now. It appears to me that we're at a crossroads in the country of what direction that will take. GM's announcement in the last few days that 40% of their vehicles, and uh, by the end of 2025, will be electric. Billions of dollars invested in electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles. The question then, is this a direction that's coming from the marketplace, is this a direction that's coming from from Washington? What's guiding our path, and do we have the the strength in an electric grid to support this new demand for power? So let me let me
1: talk about kind of where we are, kind of from a from a consumer from the marketplace, and then let me kind of move on to to the politics and the, and the motivation. I mean, we still. Um, I think tot- all, all kind of alternative cars are at, at most just about over 1% of all the, the vehicles on the road today. Even as we're seeing kind of these investments and these proclamations and statements very forward-leaning from the auto industry, again, even the most progressive projections, factoring that in, continue to show that as we see more electric vehicles, the vast majority of cars are going to be powered by liquid fuels. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that we need to keep in mind – Moving forward, to achieve this zero-carbon future, we need all solutions, including biofuels. Uh, The new administration has made electrification a priority, and I think what you're seeing in some of these announcements coming out now um, is companies, they want to be responsive. They want to indicate their desire to work with the administration. Um, And so... Uh, importantly for us, we've gotta make sure that we have a seat at the table, that we educate this administration on the importance of utilizing and leverage biofuels at every opportunity now because we are a very impactful tool in achieving climate goals and we can be used today blends in 95% of the cars on the road.
0: Prior to our conversation, I looked with the Energy Information Administration, and my question uh, as I looked was, what's the source of our electricity? 62% plus came from fossil fuels, the burning fossil fuels. Natural gas, 38%. Coal, at 23%. My question from an emissions standpoint, while electricity uh, at, the, at the end point may be more sustainable is the whole picture of an electric vehicle compared to renewable fuels. How does it add up? Well, that's a very
1: important conversation to be had. I mean, that's when you're getting into the details. You're looking at the entirety of the environmental profile of different fuel sources. And certainly when you look at it with electrification and electric vehicles, it, it's going to be a local regional power source. And that varies depending where you are in the country. So um, we... You know, this, this administration has, has talked a lot about the importance of looking at um, real, real world accurate modern current data and that's going to be very important as they're looking at the options and the tools in the toolbox and when they do that they will see just how appealing biofuels are because we have a very, very good story to tell in terms of kind of our, our um, the entirety of our overall environmental footprint.
0: In the days of the Biden administration, there will be some changes with regard to the renewable fuel standard. What do you hope from the Biden administration and a presumed Regan as administrator of EPA? Change is coming.
1: Well, so our, our hope and our expectation is that the RFS of tomorrow delivers more than the RFS of yesterday. And this administration and Mr. Regan, when he's confirmed, will have an immediate opportunity to do that with the annual RVOs. Um, I think the marketplace is sending strong signals that it, too, expects more blending under the renewable fuel standard when you look at, at the price of the RIN today uh, and lately. So our hope and expectation, and certainly this is what Mr. Biden was channeling when he was on the campaign trail, we're going to have a strong renewable fuel standard if administered in line with the intent of what what Congress intended, you're gonna have more gallons of ethanol blended. And that's what we need to see. We need to see it in the short term because that, doing right by us with the renewable fuel standard, that is the president's way to signal to all of rural America that we have a sincere partner in the White House.
0: The trade agenda of the Trump administration was drawn plenty into question. What do you hope for from Mr. Biden and his trade agenda? What do you hope from global trading partners and trends toward uh, cleaner air and climate and more renewable fuel?
1: From a trade policy perspective, what we want out of this administration is to pursue free trade and fair trade for us. There is a, undoubtedly there is a growing global appetite for our product. As several countries are looking to spur their own rural economic development. They want to address air quality. They want to address climate, and they want to have affordable fuel for their consumers. And so given that, um, we also are very good as a country at, at making um, biofuel. Uh, we make it very well, and we make it very cheaply. So we're facing some headwinds in, in terms of protective tariffs. China is obviously a very good example, but another one is Brazil. I mean, Brazil has historically been a very good trading partner for us. Unfortunately, um, at the end of the year, Brazil um, decided to put a 20% tariff in place on all U.S. exports into Brazil. That um, That's very much to our detriment. And so that is one country and market in particular that we're, wanted, we're going to want to see this administration engage on uh, and early.
0: Senator Stabenow offering her goals with regard to the Senate Agriculture Committee on the 117th, and and I think in summary we would suggest science-based climate policy. Now is the time that Washington, I would believe, is gathering data for future regulation or future legislation. What case can you make that renewable fuel is a part of the solution and should see support. Just
1: the, the most recent study coming uh, published earlier this week, that ethanol, 46% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions relative to gasoline. And there are additional studies that say with just off-the-shelf technologies, USDA's own data has said cornstarch ethanol can get up to a 70% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions relative to gasoline. So that's the ethanol that we're producing today. We know that we continue to make innovations not only at the plant level, but with a lot of what farmers are doing on the field in their own sustainable efforts. So I very much support science-based climate policy. uh, And importantly, we've got to make sure that we get the current science in the hands of those making the decisions so that they can see what we see, which is we are a readily available and importantly, too, affordable solution for their climate goals.
0: Well, Emily Scorer, we'd like to take the opportunity to thank you for being with us on this edition of Open Mic. It was a challenging 2020. We're hoping for uh, better days ahead here in 2021. We thank you for your time and offer you as traditional. You have the last word today.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Jeff. Um, You know, from from my perspective right right now, 2020 is in the rearview mirror. I'm looking ahead. It is a new year. It is a new administration. We, yes, have challenges, but we have opportunities we as an industry continue to demonstrate resilience in facing the challenges that come our way. I think if you look at how this industry responded to COVID, the fact that we were able to participate with um, in changing kind of the ethanol production to to provide high quality hand sanitizer and disinfectant. We provide 40% of the carbon dioxide that's going to be used in the dry ice to transport the vaccines that, that people are anxious to have. So uh, we... We continue to be able to display the diversity of of the co-products that we produce, and I look forward to engaging with the new leadership in Washington um, because I believe that they can and and will embrace what we have to offer.
0: Our thanks to Growth Energy CEO Emily Score, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Alley.